Chapter Sixteen of the Wanderer, or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer, or Female Difficulties, by Fanny Burney. Chapter Sixteen. From all the various sufferings of Ellis, through the scenes of this morning, the predominant remaining emotion was that of pity for her penitent young offender, whom she saw so sorely wounded by a sense of his own misconduct that he appeared to be almost impenetrable to comfort. But all her attention was soon called to the letter of Lady Aurora. To Miss Ellis, I cannot express the grief with which I have learnt the difficulties that involve my dear Miss Ellis. Will she kindly mitigate it, by allowing me, from time to time, the consolation of offering her my sympathy? May I flatter myself that she has sufficient regard for me, to let the enclosed trifle lead the way to some little arrangement during her embarrassment? Oh, were I in similar distress, I would not hesitate to place in her a similar trust. Generously, then, sweet Miss Ellis, confide in my tender regard. Aurora Granville at Lord Dunmeath's, Portman Square. The enclosed trifle was a bank-note of twenty pounds. Most welcome to the distress of Ellis was this kindness and this succour, and greatly she felt revived that, severe as had been her late conflicts, they thus terminated in casting her, for all pecuniary perplexities, upon the delicate and amiable Lady Aurora. Uncertain what might prove her reception, she desired, upon approaching Luz, that the groom would ride on, and inquire whether she could have the honour of seeing Mrs. Maple. The man then said that he had a note for that lady, from Mrs. Howell. After being detained at the gate a considerable time, a servant came to acquaint Miss Ellis that the ladies were particularly engaged, but begged that she would walk upstairs to her room. There, again established, she had soon a visit from Selina, who impatiently demanded how she had parted from Lady Aurora, and, when satisfied that it had been with the extremest kindness, she warmly embraced her, before she related that Aunt Maple had, at first, declared that she would never again let so unknown a pauper into her house. But, when she had read the note of Mrs. Howell, she changed her tone. That lady had written word that she was hastening to consign Lord Melbury and Lady Aurora to their uncle, in order to be acquitted of all responsibility, as to any continuance of this amazing acquaintance, now that, at last, she was apprised of its unfitness. She conceived that she had some claim, however, to desire that Mrs. Maple would, for the present, receive the person as usual since, if any dismissal or disgrace were immediately to follow her return from Howell House, it might publish to the world what an improper character had been admitted there, a mortification from which she thought that she had some right to be exempted. Mrs. Maple was by no means the less offended by the pride and selfishness of this note, because those qualities were familiar to her own practice. It is the wise and good alone that make allowance for defects in others. Her resentment, however, endowed her with rancour, but not with courage. She complied, therefore, with the demand which she did not dare dispute, 
but her spleen against its helpless object was redoubled, and she sent her a message, by Selina, to order that she would complain of a sore throat, as an excuse for not quitting her room, nor expecting any of the ladies to visit her, yet charged her to be careful, at the same time, to say that it was very slight, lest the people in the neighbourhood, or the servants themselves, should wonder at not seeing a physician. Ellis could by no means repine at a separation that saved her from the pride and malevolence of Mrs. Maple and of Ireton, and from the distressing incongruities of Elinor. Her spirits being thus freed from immediate alarm, she was able to ruminate upon her situation, and upon what efforts she might make for its amelioration. Her letter from abroad enjoined her still to live in concealment, with respect to her name, circumstances, and story. All hope, therefore, of any speedy change was blown over, and many fears remained that this helpless obscurity might be of long duration. It was necessary that she should form some plan, to accommodate her mode of life to her immediate condition, and to liberate, if possible, her feelings from the continual caprices to which she was now subject. To live upon charity was hostile to all her notions, though the benefaction of Lady Aurora had soothed, not mortified, her proudest sensations. But Lady Aurora was not of an age to be supposed already free from control in the use of her income, and still less was she of a character to resist the counsel or even wishes of her friends. Ellis was determined not to induce her to do either, nor could she endure to give a mercenary character to a grateful affection, which languished to show that its increase, as well as its origin, sprang from disinterested motives. All her thoughts, therefore, turned upon making the present offering suffice. Yet she was aware how short a time she could exist upon twenty pounds, while a residence at Mrs. Maple's would be now more than ever unpleasant, recent circumstances had rendered it, more than ever, also unlikely. To acquire that sort of independence, that belongs, physically, to sustaining life by her own means, was her most earnest desire. Her many accomplishments invited her industry, and promised its success, yet how to bring them into use was difficult. She had no one with whom she could consult. Elinor, though at times cordially her friend, seemed in other minutes her enraged foe. Selina was warmly good-natured, but young in every sense of the word, and Mrs. Maple considered her always with such humiliating ideas that to ask her advice would be to invite an affront. The occupation for which she thought herself most qualified, and to which, from fondness for young people, she felt herself most inclined, was that of governess to some young lady or ladies and finally she settled that she would endeavour to employ herself in that capacity. This arrangement mentally made, she communicated it, in a letter of the tenderest and most grateful thanks, to Lady Aurora, entreating her ladyship's kind and valuable aid to enable her to leave, in future, for other distressed objects, such marks of benevolence as she had last received, and to owe personally those only of esteem and regard which she prized beyond all power of expression. The next day again, very unexpectedly, Selina skipped into her room. "'We have had a most terrible fuss,' she cried. "'Do you know Lord Melbury's come on purpose to see you?' 
"'Lord Mulberry? Is he not gone to town?' "'Mrs. Howell wrote word so, and Aunt thought so, but he only went a little way, and then came back, to spend two or three days with Sir Lyle Sycamore at Bright Helmstone. He asked after you when he came in, and said that he begged leave to be allowed to speak with you a few minutes upon a commission from Lady Aurora. Aunt was quite shocked, and said that she hoped his lordship would excuse her, but she really could not consent to any such acquaintance going on in her house, now he knew so well what a nobody you were, if not worse upon which he said he did not doubt your being a well-brought-up young lady for he was certain that you were modesty itself and then he begged so hard and said so many pretty and civil things to aunt that she was brought round only it was upon conditions she said that there should be a witness and she proposed mrs fenn lord mulberry was as red as fire and said that would not be treating miss ellis with the respect which he was sure was her due and he could not be so impertinent as to desire to see her upon such terms so after a good deal more fuss it was settled at last that sister elinor should be present so now you are to come down to her dressing-room ellis though startled at the effect that might be produced by his remaining at bright helmstone was sensibly touched by these public and resolute marks of his confirmed and undoubting esteem elinor presently with restored good humour and an air of the most lively pleasure came to fetch her "'Lord Melbury,' she cried, "'certainly adores you. "'You never saw a man's face of so many colours in your life "'as when Aunt Mabel speaks of you irreverently. "'If you manage well, you may be at Gretna Green in a week.' "'They descended, without any answer made by Ellis, to the dressing-room. "'The air of Lord Melbury was far less dejected than when they had last parted, "'yet it had by no means regained its natural spring and vivacity.' and he advanced to pay his compliments to ellis with a look of even studious deference he would detain her he said but a few minutes yet could not leave the country without informing her of two visits which he had made the day before both of which had ended precisely with the amity that she had wished Eleanor, enchanted in believing from this opening that a confidential intercourse was already arranged declared that her aunt must look elsewhere for a spy as she would by no means play this part and then ran into the adjoining room lord melbury and ellis would have detained but could not follow her as it was her bedchamber lord melbury then who saw that ellis was uneasy promised to be quick i demanded said he yesterday an interview with mr harleigh i told him without reserve all that had passed I cannot paint to you the indignation he showed at the aspersions of Ireton. He determined to go to him directly, and I resolved to accompany him. Don't look pale, Miss Ellis. I repeated to Mr. Harleigh the promise you had exacted from me, and he confessed himself to be perfectly of your opinion, that all angry defence or public resentment must necessarily, in such a case, be injurious. Yet to let the matter drop might expose you to fresh abominations." ireton received us with a mixture of curiosity and carelessness very inquisitive to know what had passed but very indifferent whether it were good or bad we both by agreement affected to treat the matter lightly gravely as we both thought of it i thanked him therefore for the salutary counsel by which he had urged me to procure myself so confounded a rap of the knuckles for my assurance 
and Mr. Harley made his acknowledgments in the same tone for the compliment paid to his liberality of supposing that a person, who in any manner should be thought under his protection, could be in a state of penury. We both, I hope, made him ashamed. He had not, he owned, reflected deeply upon the subject, for which, Mr. Harley told me afterwards, there was a very cogent reason, namely that he did not know how. Mr. Harley, when we were coming away, forcibly said, Ireton, placing Lord Melbury and myself wholly apart in this business, ask your own sagacity, I beg, how a female who is young, beautiful, and accomplished can suffer from pecuniary distress if her character be not unimpeachable. Upon that, struck with the truth of the remark, he voluntarily protested that he would make you all the amends in his power. So ended our visit, and I cannot but hope that it will release you from all similar persecutions. Alice expressed her sincere and warm gratitude, and Lord Melbury, with an air of penetrating respect, took his leave, evidently much solaced by the consciousness of serving one whom he had injured. Ellis had every reason to be gratified by this attention, which set her mind wholly at rest upon the tenor of Lord Melbury's regard, while Elinor was so much delighted to find the acquaintance advanced so rapidly to confidence that she embraced Ellis, wished her joy, mocked all replies of a disclaiming nature, and, accompanying her back to her room, made her a long, social, lively, and entertaining visit, hearing and talking over her project of becoming a governess but laughing at it as a ridiculous idea for the decided wife-elect of earl melbury she was succeeded by selina who exultingly came to acquaint ellis that mr ireton had just made a formal renunciation of all ill opinion of her and had told mrs maple that he had indubitable proofs that she was a person of the very strictest character so now cried she lady aurora and i may avow our friendship to you for life this was a very solid satisfaction to Ellis, to whom the calumny of Ireton had been almost insupportable. She now hoped that Mrs. Maple would favour her new scheme, and that she might remain tranquilly in the house till it took place, and equip herself from the donation of Lady Aurora for her immediate appearance in the situation which she sought. She resolved to seize the first opportunity for returning Harleigh his bank-notes, and the Miss Jodrells their half-guineas. She wished also to repay the guinea of the worthy admiral, and to repeat to him her grateful acknowledgments. His name and address she concluded that she might learn from Harleigh, but she deferred this satisfaction, till more secure of success. The next day Selina ran upstairs to her again. "'Who do you think?' she cried, came into the parlour in the middle of breakfast. Mr. Dennis Harley, he arrived at Brighthelmstone last night. Sister Eleanor turned quite white and never spoke to him. She only just made a sort of bow to his asking how she did, and then swallowed her tea burning hot and left the room. He can stay only one day, for he must be in London to-morrow night. He has come for his final answer, for he's quite out of patience." Selina had hardly descended the stairs, when Elinor herself mounted them. She entered the chamber precipitately, her face colourless, and her eyes starting from her head. "'Ellis!' she cried. "'I must speak with you!' She seated herself, made Ellis sit exactly opposite to her, and went on. "'There are two things which I want to say to you, or rather to demand of you. Have you fortitude enough to tell truth, even though it should wound your self-love?' 
and honour enough to be trusted with a commission a thousand times more important than life or death, and to execute it faithfully, though at the risk of seeing the greatest idiot that ever existed show sufficient symptoms of sense to run mad? Alarmed by her ghastly look, and frightened at the abruptness of questions utterly incomprehensible, Ellis gently entreated to be spared any request with which she could not comply. "'I do not mean,' cried Elinor, with quickness, "'to make any call upon your confidence, or to put any fetters upon your conduct. You will be as free after you have spoken as before. I want merely to ascertain a fact of which my ignorance distracts me.' If you have to give me a negative, your vanity alone can suffer. If an affirmative—' She put her hand upon her forehead, and then rapidly added, "'The suffering will not be yours. Give it, therefore, boldly. T'will be heaven to me to end the suspense, be it how it may.' Starting up, but preventing Ellis from rising, by laying a hand upon each of her shoulders, she gazed upon her eyes with a fixed stare, of almost frantic impatience, and said, speak say yes or no at once give me no phrase let me see no hesitation kill me or restore me to life has harleigh she gasped for breath ever made you any declaration none steadily forcibly and instantly ellis answered enough cried she recovering some composure she then walked up and down the room involuntarily smiling and her lips in a motion that showed that she was talking to herself. Then stopping, and taking Ellis by the hand, and half laughing, "'You will think me,' she cried, "'crazy, but I assure you I had never a more exquisite enjoyment of my senses. I see everything to urge, and nothing to oppose, my following the bent of my own humour, or, in other words, throwing off the trammels of unmeaning custom, and acting, as well as thinking, for myself.' Again, then, walking up and down the chamber, she pursued her new train of ideas, with a glee which manifested that she found them delightful. "'My dear Ellis,' she cried, presently, "'have you ever chanced to hear of such a person as Dennis Harleigh?' Ellis wished to avoid answering this question, on account of her informant to Selina, but her embarrassment was answer sufficient. "'I see, yes,' cried Elinor. "'I see that you have heard of that old story.' "'Don't be frightened,' added she, laughing. "'I am not going to ask who blabbed it. "'I had as believed it were one impertinent fool as another. "'Only never imagine me of the tribe of sentimental pedants "'who think it a disgrace to grow wiser, "'or who suppose that they must abide by their first opinions, "'for fear the world should know that they think twice upon one subject. "'For what is changing one's mind but taking the pro one time and the con another?' "'But come,' continued she, this is no time for rattling. Two years I have existed upon speculation. I must now try how I shall fare upon practice. Is it not just, Ellis, that it should be you who should drag me out of the slough of despond, since it was you who flung me into it? However, now for your commission, do you feel as if you could execute it with spirit? With willingness, certainly, if I see any chance of success. No ifs, Ellis. I hate the whole tribe of dubiosity however that you may not make any blunder i shall tell you my story myself for all that you have heard from others you must sit down to ignorance or prejudice nobody knows my feelings and nobody understands my reasons so everybody is at war against me in the dark now hearken 
just as I came of age, and ought to have shaken off the shackles of Aunt Maple, and to have enjoyed my independence and my fortune together, accident brought into my way a young lawyer, this Dennis Harley, of great promise in the only profession in the world that gives wit fair play. And I thought him, then, mark me, Ellis, then, of a noble appearance. He delighted to tell me his causes, state their merits, and ask my opinions. I always took the opposite side to that which he was employed to plead, in order to try his powers, and prove my own. The French Revolution had just then burst forth, into that noble flame that nearly consumed the old world, to raise a new one, phoenix-like, from its ashes. Soon tired of our everyday subjects and contests, I began canvassing with him the rights of man. He had fallen desperately in love with me, either for my wit or my fortune, or both, and therefore all topics were sure to be approved. Enchanted with a warfare in which I was certain to be always victorious, I grew so fond of conquest that I was never satisfied but when combating, and the joy I experienced in the display of my own talents made me dote upon his sight. The truth is, our mutual vanity mutually deceived us. He saw my pleasure in his company, and concluded that it was personal regard. I found nothing to rouse the energies of my faculties in his absence, and imagined myself enamoured of my vanquished antagonist. Aunt Maple did her little best, for everything she does is little, to forward the connection, because, though his fortune is trifling, his professional expectations are high, and though he is a younger brother, he is born of a noble family, and that sort of mean old stuff is always in her head for if the whole world were revolutionized you could never make her conceive a new idea and the great fact of all is she cannot bear i should leave her house before i marry because she is sure in one of my own i shall adopt some new system of life thus in the toils of my self-love i became entangled poor dennis called himself the happiest of men the settlements were all drawn up and we were looking about us for a house to our fancy, and all that sort of stuff, when Dennis introduced his family to us. Now the rest, I suppose, you can divine. This was, indeed, not difficult, but Ellis durst not risk any reply. With a rapidity scarcely intelligible, and in a manner wholly incoherent, she then went on. Ellis, I pretend not to any mystery. Why is one person adorable and another detestable, but to call forth our love and our hatred, to give birth to all that snatches us from mere inert existence, to our passions, our energies, our noblest conceptions of all that is towering and sublime? Whether you have any idea of this mental enlargement, I cannot tell. But with it I see human nature endowed with capabilities immeasurable of perfection, and without it I regard and treat the whole of my race as the mere dramatis personae of a farce, of which I am myself, when performing with such fellow actors, a principal buffoon. Nearly out of breath, she stopped a moment, then, looking earnestly at Ellis, said, Do you understand me? Ellis, in a fearful accent, answered, I... I am not quite sure. Remove your doubts, then, cried she, impatiently. I despise what is obscure, still more than I hate what is false. Falsehood may at least approach to that degree of grandeur which belongs to the crime, but obscurity is always mean, always seeking some subterfuge, always belonging to art. Again she stopped. But Ellis, uncertain whether this remark were meant to introduce her confidence, or to censure her own secrecy, waited an explanation in silence. 
Elinor was evidently, however, embarrassed, though anxious to persuade herself, as well as Ellis, that she was perfectly at her ease. She walked a quick pace up and down the room, then stopped, seemed pausing, hemmed to clear her voice for speech, and then walked backwards and forwards before the window, which she frequently opened and shut, without seeming to know that she touched it, till at length, seized with sudden indignation against herself, for this failure of courage, she energetically exclaimed, "'How paltry is shame where there can be no disgrace! I disdain it, disclaim it, and am ready to avow to the whole world that I dare speak and act as well as think and feel for myself!' Yet, even thus buoyed up, thus full fraught with defiance, something within involuntarily, invincibly checked her, and she hastily resumed her walks and her ruminations. "'What amazing, unaccountable fools!' she cried. "'Have we all been for these quantities of centuries? "'Worlds seem to have a longer infancy taken out of the progress of their duration, "'even than the long imbecility of the childhood of poor mortals. "'But for the late glorious revolutionary shake given to the universe, "'I should at this very moment, from mere cowardly conformity, "'be the wife of Dennis.' in spite of my repentance of the engagement, in spite of the aversion I have taken to him, and in spite of the contempt I have conceived, with one single exception, for the whole race of mankind, I must have been that poor man's despicable wife. Oh, despicable indeed! For with what sentiments could I have married him? Where would have been my soul while I had given him my hand? Had I not seen, known, adored his brother? She stopped and the deepest vermilion overspread her face. Her effort was made, she had boasted of her new doctrine, lest she should seem impressed with confusion from the old one which she violated. But the struggle being over, the bravado and exultation subsided, female consciousness and native shame took their place, and abashed and unable to meet the eyes of Ellis, she ran out of the room. In the whole of this scene, Ellis observed, with mingled censure and pity, the strong conflict in the mind of Elinor, between ungoverned inclination, which sought new systems for its support, and an innate feeling of what was due to the sex that she was braving, and the customs that she was scorning. She soon reappeared, but with a wholly new air, lively, disengaged, almost sportive. Her heart was lightened by unburdening her secret. The feminine delicacies which opposed the discovery, once broken through, oppressed her no more, and the idea of passing, now straight forward, to the purposes for which she had done herself this violence, reanimated her spirit, and gave new vigour to her faculties. She laughed at herself for having run away, without explaining the meaning of her communication, and for charging Alice with a commission, of which she had not made known even the nature. She then more clearly stated her situation. From the time of her first interview with Albert, her whole mind had recoiled from all thought of union with his brother. Yet the affair was so far advanced, and she saw herself so completely regarded by Albert as a sister, though treated by him with an openness, a frankness, and an affection the most captivating, that she had not courage to proclaim her change of sentiment. The conflict of her mind, during this doubting state, threatened to cast her into a consumption. She was ordered to the south of France, and there, happily arrived, new scenes, a new world, rather, opened to her a code of new ideas, that soon, she said, 
taught her to scoff at idle misery, and might even, from the occupation given to her feelings, by the glorious confusion and mad wonders around her, have recovered her from the thraldom of an overruling propensity, had not Dennis, unable from professional engagements to quit his country, been so blind upon hearing that her health was re-established, as to persuade his brother to cross the channel in order to escort the two travellers home. From the moment, the fated moment, that Albert arrived to be her guide and her guard, he became so irresistibly the master of her heart that her destiny was determined. Whether good or ill she knew not yet, but it was fixed. Ill had not occurred to her sanguine expectations, nor doubt, nor fear, till the eventful meeting with Ellis. Till then she had believed her happiness secure, for she had supposed that nothing stood in her way, save a little brotherly punctilio. But, since the junction of Ellis, the spontaneous interest which Albert had taken in her fate, and her affairs, had appeared to be so marvellous, that, at every new view of his pity, his respect, or his admiration, she was seized with the most uneasy feelings, which sometimes worked her up into pangs of excruciating jealousy, and at others seemed to be so ill-founded, that, recollecting a thousand instances of his general benevolence, she laughed her own surmises to scorn. How the matter still stood, with regard to his heart, she confessed herself unable to form any permanent judgment. The time, however, was now happily arrived to abolish suspense, for even Dennis now could bear it no longer. She expected, she said, a desperate scene, but at least it would be a final one. She had only, for many months past, been restrained from giving Dennis his dismission, lest Albert should drop all separate acquaintance, from the horror of seeming treacherously to usurp the place of his brother. Nevertheless, she would frankly have endured her disturbance, by an avowal of the truth, had not Albert been the eldest brother, and consequently the richest, and the disgraceful supposition that she might be influenced to desire the change from mercenary motives, would have had power to yoke her to Dennis, for the rest of her weary existence, had not her mind been so luminously open to its own resources, and inherent right of choice, by her continental excursion. The grand effect, she continued, of beholding so many millions of men, let loose from all ties, divine or human, gave such play to my fancy, such a range to my thoughts, and brought forth such new, unexpected, and untried combinations to my reason, that I frequently felt as if just created and ushered into the world, not perhaps as wise as another Minerva, but equally formed to view and to judge all around me, without the gradations of infancy, childhood, and youth, that hitherto have prepared for maturity. Everything now is upon a new scale, and man appears to be worthy of his faculties, which during all these past ages he has set aside, as if he could do just as well without them, holding it to be his bounden duty, to be trampled to the dust, by old rules and forms, because all his papas and uncles were trampled so before him. However, I should not have troubled myself, probably, with any of these abstruse notions, had they not offered me a new road for life, when the old one was worn out, to find that all was novelty and regeneration throughout the finest country in the universe, soon infected me with the system-forming spirit, and it was then that I conceived the plan I am now going to execute, but I shall not tell it you in its full extent, as I am uncertain what may be your strength of mind for measures of force and character, and perhaps they may not be necessary, 
So now to your commission. I am fixed to cast wholly aside the dainty common barriers, which shut out from female practice all that is elevated, or even natural. Dennis, therefore, shall know that I hate him. Albert! Ah, Ellis, that I hate him not! My operations are to commence thus. Act one, scene one. Enter Ellis, seeking Albert. Don't stare so. I know perfectly well what I am about. Scene two. Albert and Ellis meet. Ellis informs him that she must hold a confabulation with him the next day, and desires he will remain at Lewes to be at hand. Oh, Miss Jodrell, interrupted Ellis, you must at least give me leave to say that it is by your command that I make a request so extraordinary. By no means. He must not suspect that I have any knowledge of your intention. The truth, like an explosion of thunder, shall burst upon his head at once, so only shall I truly know whether it will shake him with dismay, or magnetize him by its sublimity. Yet how, madam, under what pretense can I take such a liberty? Fofo, this is no time for delicate demurs. If he be not engaged to stay before I turn his brother adrift, he will accompany him to town, as a thing, of course, to console him in his willowed state. The rest of my plot is not yet quite ripe for disclosure, but all is arranged, and though I know not whether the catastrophe will be tragic or comic, I am prepared, in my part, for either. She then went away. End of chapter 16. Recording by Roxana Nazari.